This is the good, the Baz, and the ugly. I'm the Baz. Well, that no, I'm Baz. That sounds weird if I were going around calling myself the Baz. Anyway, uh, look, this podcast is filled with uncensored interviews with experts in particular fields or real-life stories from people who have inspiring personal tales to tell. It covers various topics and life stories that I've really dug, you know what I mean? And I think you'll dig them too. Just so you know, this podcast is for grown-ups. It may contain adult themes, sexual references, and strong language. Fuck yeah! No, I just wanted to. Sheet! Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. Hold it now, wait, hold it. I know you're gonna dig this. I think the best thing for me to do is to introduce him. What the... What's his name? Baz Ashwami. It's not Baz Ashwami. It's Baz Ashmawi. Welcome. Welcome to episode 13. Lucky for some... Unlucky for some. I'm looking at you, Mai. Thanks. Yep. Season two. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly. In case you just, you know, you clicked on it, so you must know what it is. Um, I, I am okay. I'm Baz. What? And you're Baz. And I'm Baz, and uh, I'm here with Mahi and John John, and <laughs> I've been in a continuous hump for the week. That I know we do a very positive podcast, and I, I like that that we leave people with a nice vibe, but and I shouldn't be projected negative kind of feelings but we're an emotionally honest show as well i feel so if i've got the hump we're a family we are a family and that's why maybe (laughs) i don't know what you've even done to make me feel this towards you but i do feel slightly pissed at you for something (laughs) that's okay i'll just do my fuck you dance and that'll i'll feel okay okay No no one can see it but it's i've been doing it since i'm 14 so it's done me a lifetime um now I was I was bitching to you during the week, John John, right? Yeah. And I was saying that it's me kids, man, is who I love, right? But they're bored, right? And now they're just finding ways. There's a lot of tears, a lot of stress, and they're they're misbehaving a bit lately. There's a lot of bands going on. One's banned from. Oh, do you know what I had during the week? Actually, I had this with Hannah during the week, right? Where <laughs> I was quite impressed with her. But you know that thing of. Right, you're banned for the rest of the week. Make it two weeks. Two weeks then. Make it a month. Uh, so she racked up fucking two months, <laughs> right? Which I was slightly impressed with. I went, we can do this all day. Up to two months, right? So she's banned from the PS and the games and all that for two months. I'd say she'll be on probation for about, maybe after a month. I'll, I'll have a look at it and see how. But, but, but I respected her tantrum. It's it's something. It's a very nice she committed honestly. Like if she could have said "fuck you, dad," like she would have. But she knows that that's that's a bit too far, you know. But anyway, um. So I was saying, I was bitching to you, and I was saying, do you know what? It's like being a a, a warden to children. That's what it is. I go around. <laughs> honestly, I go around with a rolled up edition of Men's Health, and I just knock on doors and <laughs> kick honestly that's all I do to check on people and jump out and try and catch all them the, out all the kids with mirrors out of their bedrooms honestly and, then, <laughs> and, and that's, that's what it's like and then we got chatting and I was saying I've, I've been to prisons not as a uh, inmate or anything but as a guest I've gone into prisons all around the world making making TV shows but I've never had any connection or, or any insight into any of the Irish prisons and uh and that's what I said to you, John John, right? Yeah. I said, John get John, us get, get me someone I can talk to. And John John, in case you don't know, John John is magic. And John John found me the governor. All heroes wear capes. But this is it. John John just wears <laughs> pajamas most of the times. But, Leave my cape out of this money. Yeah, yeah. But, but so John John found me the governor of Mountjoy, Mr. Eddie Mullins. John John, yeah. what did you ask? Because you do little pre-interviews. So what you you asked some seedy shit, man, didn't you? To the to the I didn't. I seedy shit or serious shit. I I said seedy, but some, yeah, I some said difficult questions for me to ask him. Yeah, but they're important, Buzz. They're important questions. Difficult questions to ask. Saucy questions. So, he didn't think they were important. He didn't think they were important. He didn't. He didn't. <laughs> he didn't want to answer them. So we just had a great chat. Like it was really interesting. We really enjoyed it. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. Um, this is that chat. This this is a uh, now first I don't know what do I call you Mr. Mullins do I call you Governor do I call you Warden do call I, me. What do, <laughs> what do I go with Eddie? Just call just call me Eddie. Eddie, Eddie right, fine. Eddie. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, just it's just so we're clear. What's your what's your professional title? So my professional title is Governor of Mountjoy. 
governor of Mountjoy, right, wow. Yeah. Tell me this, how do you become a governor of Mountjoy? How does that begin? Well, I suppose traditionally anybody that joins the prison service can potentially become a governor. So it's, it's, it's usually the role of a prison officer who would join as a prison officer, maybe go through the ranks and, um, and rise up to the ranks to be a governor. Right. That isn't always the case. We've had uh, colleagues from HQ who ended up governors, but generally speaking, it is people who've served time on the prison floor, as we say, right. to be promoted through the ranks. Where, where, did you, where did you kind of cut your teeth then as such? Well, you see... Realistically speaking, that I shouldn't be mentioning to cotton to a prison warden. No, but, no, no, but, you're fine, you're fine, yeah. you're fine. To some of my colleagues, I would be seen as somebody who didn't really cut their teeth enough because I joined the prison service as a chef. Right. And I worked in the kitchens. Now, I also worked on the landings, but the, the, the slagging among my colleagues would be that I never really did hard time as they say because I worked in the kitchens. You let me get let, let me get this right. You started as a chef. No, no, I started as a prison officer, but I was a chef. Right. So because I came in as a chef, I obviously uh, prison service utilizing everybody's skills, put me into the kitchen early on in my career and I worked there for a number of years and then I kind of was promoted out of that to various other streams. But yes, I would for my sins I was a chef. Still am a chef. Once a chef, always a chef. That's gas. That's gas. Because that no, probably as a young fella, you never thought you were going to be a prison warden, did you? No, no. My father-in-law was a prison officer. He died last year. But when I was going out, my wife, my current wife, my wife was my girlfriend at the time. Uh, she encouraged me to go for the prison service. And I, I was successful. And before I joined, I went off to... Um, for a week with her to convince her that I wasn't that this job wasn't for me I didn't want to be in the prison service and um, she said look give it a week give it a couple of weeks and we came back from Majorca I joined the prison service came to Mountjoy in 1991 and I never really intended to stay in the job I said you know I'll find something that is more suited to me and just I, I grew to like it and I grew to love it and, and the rest is history. You just to get an idea about you again sorry are you are you a family man? Yep, yep. I have three three grown-up children, uh, two working from home at the moment. One is living with his girlfriend, so he's moved out. Yeah. You, he's strict? He's strict, Dad? No. <laughs> no, are you? you that, that's what I was wondering. I was going, no, Jesus, no. he must be a pain in the balls as a dad. No. He probably they can't get away with anything, do you know? But you're no, probably... I'm actually, the, I, I'm the opposite. I'm, I'm too soft. My wife would be stricter. She'd be trying to put a bit of manner and a bit of discipline on the, on the kids, but it's too late at this stage. They're all <laughs> now. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose, say for me, I have a bad day. Usually, Eddie, that someone cuts my hair badly or, you know, I make a fluff on TV or, you know, it's something very minor is a bad day in my world. What's a bad day in, in your world? You know, to be honest with you, it's, it's, it's hard to put it in the context of a bad day. So there's more pressurized days than other. Okay, so if our numbers go up, for example, if there's a lot of people committed from court, we come in in the morning and you have to, look at where you're going to keep people, where you're going to accommodate people, you can separate people that don't get on with each other. That can be tough and challenging, right? I wouldn't call it a bad day. A bad day, I suppose, would be if somebody died in custody, for example. Mm. That's a bad day. It brings an awful atmosphere to the prison. It's very difficult on prisoners. It's very difficult on staff. So that's probably the best example of a really bad day in prison. Yeah. It's a difficult situation for both prisoners and staff to deal with and for, obviously, myself and my colleagues to deal with. So we say, I arrive my first day What's the procedure? What happens to me, Eddie? It can be very daunting, obviously, for somebody who hasn't been in prison before to arrive into prison. It's very daunting. Coming to Mountjoy, you're coming in the main gate. It's very austere. It's very, it's definitely a frightening, intimidating uh, environment to come into. So we try to make the first 24 hours of a person goes into prison as, as uh, I won't say easy, that's the wrong word, as, as unintimidating as possible for them, okay? So each person will be brought through what we call a reception, okay? So they'll meet... Uh, a member of staff on reception and the staff member will take the particular details and talk to them in, in relation to where they're going to go and just any details that the personal details that the prisoner has that we need to record take his property off him and um, give him prison clothes and then he will be moved from reception to what we call our committal unit which is a unit where other people who come in from the courts will go so in that unit it will only be committal prisoners and he will meet uh, uh, the governor, for example. He will meet the chaplain. The staff that are down there will explain the process to him, what's, what he's likely to, to um, encounter over the next few days. Uh, he'll be given a booklet in terms of uh, prison conditions and what he's entitled to and what's available to him while he's here. 
And it's just, it's, I suppose, that 24 hours is a period for, for the person to say, well, look, I'm now here. And it also gives us an opportunity to see if there's any links to any other criminals that may be an issue for him or may be an issue for us and look and see if there are any protection issues. We'd also check him out medically. He'll be seen by a nurse and a doctor and they'll establish what sort of health uh, needs he may have. And we try then to move the individual on to a, a normal part of the, of, the, of the prison. So we call it a wing. We'll try to move him on the next day. Uh, and at that stage, he will know if there are people in prison that he knows. Mm. So he might say, look, I have a cousin up on A3, chance I can go to A3 or whatever it is. So it gives us all an opportunity to, uh, to sound out the situation. How many prisoners roughly uh, do you have? Okay, so today we have 697. So we have capacity for about 755 in Mount Joy Mail Prison. When, we're at, when we go over 700, it creates difficulties for us in terms of, 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 of keeping people apart and making sure that, you know, that people are safe. So we like to keep it around the 700 mark if possible. Mm. That gives us enough breathing space to make sure that you know, everybody is kept safe and, and, and it's a much more manageable number. I have so many questions. Like, I suppose the first thing that springs to mind is um, there's, there's points in your life where you reach a kind of rock bottom, right? And I imagine... If, depending on what your relationship with prison is, but for the for a, a large majority, let's say half of them at least, it's it, they're probably going in there at a at a very low point in their lives. Do you get me? And maybe um, wh- how do you approach that? Like, are you? I'm trying to get a picture. Are you Robin Williams? Do you know what I mean? Are you trying to? Are you trying to engage with them and change them? And it's a fair question, and I suppose. Uh, a prison sentence is, is generally taken in stages. So as I said to you, when somebody comes into prison first, it's about establishing the, it's about establishing, you know, the mental health status of the person, physical health status of the person, connections you might have to other people. And generally then what happens is when a person gets some time to readjust the fact that they're in prison, particularly if it's a long sentence, then they'll start to engage with various services. So they'll work with education, they'll work with addiction counsellors, the psychology service, the chaplaincy service, prison officers themselves. And a rapport then is built up between the staff and the, uh, and the, uh, and the prisoner himself. And you'll, like, it's very complex. You know, you, you look at the prison population, three and a half thousand, whatever it is, it's a, a significant number of those people who are not interested in rehabilitation. So they're involved in organized crime, they're making serious living out of it, and they're the controllers of the criminality in the, in the, in the, in the community. But then there is, that the, we'll call them, for want of a better word, and it's probably an unfortunate term, but you have the minions, the guys who are sucked into criminality, they're the people you're talking about who, who really have, are at rock bottom, maybe have lost their way in the community, maybe have no support in the community they could come from. But in terms, if you look at in terms of criminal behavior, very often one of the factors is an unstable family background, okay? It may not just be because two parents could be there, but they could be both unstable, or there could be grandparents, or it could be, you know, there's a, there's a variety of reasons in, in, in the family situation why people often drift into criminality. So they're the kind of things we need to, to work on. We need to establish what sort of supports the, the guy might have in, in the community and then steer him in that direction with, if, if, as I say, addiction issue concentrate on his addiction while he's in prison it's mental health which is becoming more and more prevalent in prisons we have to then work with our psychiatric and our psychology team to try and stabilize the guy and see what sort of supports and what sort of interventions he might need then going forward so it's there isn't one solution it isn't the one size fits all you know and you, you mentioned there Baz, about people hitting rock bottom like you know t- tonight for example we will have a couple of hundred prison officers and maybe a dozen nurses on working in all the prisons and they will walk around the landings checking on prisoners. And, uh, and you know, they'll come across very vulnerable people who are at really rock bottom, who don't see any hope. It's those interventions at that time at night that save many lives every year. And again, it's something that goes unreported, but it happens routinely. Lots of self-harm among prisoner population, particularly those who are vulnerable and those who are, are, you know, are at, a, at a point in their life where they don't see much hope. They don't see much uh, future for themselves. So it's very complex. Then there's the other guys who wreak havoc on society, who are in here. They, they see it as it's, it's a point in time. I'd serve me 12 months, two years, whatever it is. I'm not interested in anything you can offer me. I want to get back out and make serious money in criminality. And you have to deal with them in a different way. And I mean, I suppose the people that I'm talking about tonight will be checked to make sure they're securely detained. You know? So that's the kind of, it's a kind of a, 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 a complex situation. 
yeah. very often very not not well understood in the community. I mean, every modern society has a uh, as a prison system. You know, our prison system is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we certainly are working. You know, with our I suppose our our objective is to try and achieve positive outcomes for prisoners. Because if you get if you if you break the cycle. It's, it's positive for the community. You know, it's not just about the prisoner. It's actually, it impacts significantly on the communities that they come from as well, you know. So, so from a structure point of view, like, what, I imagine they need a lot of structure. So what does their kind of day look like? One of the things about people when they come to prison is that they have a structure to the day. And when they're released, then that structure is gone. And that's, again, another problem when they go back into the community. So, for example, a prisoner's unlocked about quarter past eight in the morning. They get their breakfast. They'll have their breakfast in their cell. And then they'll be unlocked at quarter past nine. They'll go to whatever activities they're interested in. It might be education. It might be, might go to the gym. They might go to the exercise yard. You know, there's a, they go to work training activities. They work in the kitchen, the bakery, all of the various services that we have in the prison. And their day is structured. They'll take a, a break. They'll go back to work, they'll take an afternoon, then take a tea break in the evening, and they'll go on, on what we call reserve, which is recreation. So it's a structured day. It starts at about quarter past eight in the morning, and they're locked up at eight or 7.30 in the evening. So that's basically the the the, the format of the day. Okay. Because oddly enough, I've, I've spent time in prisons in uh, Lima and in Texas or Oklahoma and places like that. And... Not surprisingly, I found them incredibly scary, intimidating places with, with just, they were very segregated into lots of different gangs and things like that. Now, I don't want to get into gangs at all, but, sure, but is, yeah. is, are the prison, is there an element to that in, 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 in where you Look, are in Mountjoy? Well, I mean, the reality is bad. Every town, every large town in Ireland, is nor, is, the, the criminality is nearly always organised crime. Okay, so there are gangs in every town in Ireland and are affiliated to gangs in other towns. So that is the structure of crime at the moment, the criminality at the moment. So, of course, prison is a microcosm of society. So whatever we see in the community, we have it replicated in prisons. But the reality is, you know, people on, on, on current uh, gang and crime, and they talk about particular gangs. And, I mean, when I joined the prison service 30 years ago, there were gangs well-known at the time. You know, they were infamous at the time. So gang culture and gangland crime is not a new phenomenon. It's just, it's much more organized and it's much more structured. And of course we have it in prison. But the difference I think in, in Irish prisons is, uh, and I think it's to do with our, our uh, personality, and I'm talking about collective personality, the Irish personality, is that relationships between prisoners and staff is generally quite good. Now there are pockets of, of difficulties, but there's generally a good relationship. There's a lot of communication between staff and prisoners. There's a lot of conversations with staff and prisoners. There is, I suppose, we're a nation of people that talk. So you would see that, that would be a totally different um, impression to what you'd see, for example, in the, in the relationship which was talked about, where yeah. staff and prisoners have no relationship whatsoever. So that's a big key, um, I suppose, benefit of our system, is that there is a good relationship, both with prison staff and then with other service providers like teachers and addiction counsellors and, and the people I've mentioned, psychologists, and all of that, you know. The prison I was in in Manila, they used to have every Sunday, the families used to come and have a barbecue. Right, and then they could bring in drugs, maybe for the prisoners, or they could have a conjugal visit. And um, you can't have conjugal visits, can you? Are they allowed? No. No. Okay. No. Sorry. No, no. Just, just checking. We're, we're on the same page, right? And tell me this: yeah. we're related, going back to relationships between yeah. the inmates and the guards. You said like because it's part of the personality, yeah. you know, yeah. to kind of have a bit of crack. Do the guards need to be careful not to? give away too much about themselves or do they are, are they instructed to limit their contact with with the prisoners well you know absolutely i mean the reality is uh, when a prison when a person joins a prison service they will go into they'll do a period of training in our training college okay and and again it's about professional conduct so you know you can be you can be uh, you can be chatty you can talk to people but always keep it professional okay mm -hmm. so you would, we would always tell people, don't get into discussions about your personal life. It's, 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 a, it's a step that's too far. Some prisoners, of course, will encroach and they'll look for information and, and that's, their, you know, that's their objective to get as much information as they can. We would always tell our, our, our particularly new staff, be very conscious of the environment you're in, be very conscious that you're talking to people that you don't know. So keep it on a professional level. And... Um, and again, you build up a resilience over over uh, over time. You know, so you become very accustomed to the environment you're in pretty quickly. And you know, there are pockets where some staff have said things and and, and left themselves a little bit exposed. But generally speaking, the, our staff are very experienced in how they deal with 
prisoners and they keep it to uh, professional discussion at most times. Or maybe listen to a prisoner's problems and let the prisoner unload some of their issues to prison staff. And that's a good way of helping them and maybe establishing what exactly interventions they may need, you know? Yeah, I, 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 when, I, when I imagine the prisoners, because there's always this picture that they're just incredibly clever, shrewd, uh, like um, talented, actually, like talented people as well, who, uh, what, kind of, what, what kind of skill sets have you seen sometimes where you've kind of gone, fucking hell, that's amazing, that yeah, yeah. he could do that, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So let's put it this way, so one of the big challenges we have always is, is contraband, okay, so drugs, mobile phones, and you know, you, 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 just, you look at any of the red tops on the papers and you see so much about what was what was uncovered in prison and you know Mount Joy like we're 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 uh, on the front page every week but yeah prisons are very they're very uh, clever at ways of of concealing contraband of of you know of of masking things and you know even the way they communicate with each other you know they have their own language they have their own uh, they've done language uh, way of, well, I, we won't call it like it's not never necessarily verbal, but in terms in terms of communicating information, they have their own style of of getting information from one part of the prison to the other, you know, and bypassing the prison staff. That's the reality. That's a phenomenon all over the world, guys. You know, yeah, like I know, of, I know from walking in the corridors yeah. of of Oklahoma, that just the little mirrors all pop out straight away as soon as you as soon as you pop yeah. out, all the little mirrors come out yeah, yeah. and then the hallway, yeah. like. Um, I suppose from contraband point of view, like what are the popular cryptocurrencies that they use? Is it like, is it heroin, cigarettes? Is it what type? Well, heroin is not the problem it was, okay? So heroin was really a problem of the, of the 90s and the 2000s in prisons, okay? So I suppose tablets are a big thing. So prescription tablets, different types of, 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 uh, of antidepressants taken at, uh, in, in large enough quantities are very, are, are very, very popular. Uh, cannabis is still very popular. You know, some of the old head shop oils that would have been, uh, we would have called them legal highs. So they would be quite popular. Um, so really, it's, it's, it's unfortunately, in many cases, it's anything they can get their hands on. You know, that's the reality of it. Um, and normally what happens is a consignment of a particular drug comes into the prison and it's shared about, uh, out of, among the prisoners and you'll see uh, whatever behaviours associated with taking that drug, you'll see it across the prison. Okay. Then you might have a situation where prisoners will take cannabis and they have a different kind of a, a personality having smoked cannabis. And, you know, even hooch, for example. So hooch is a, is a, is a home brew that would be made in prisons. Hooch be popular, particularly around St. Paddy's Day or Easter or Christmas, you know. Jeez, I'm, I'm locked up with my missus for about a year now. I'm ready to make fucking hooch. Like, you wouldn't hold that I'll against them, the would you? I'll send you the recipe for hooch. Like, I have a good recipe for um, do Because they have to be, I suppose, I suppose when you've all day to think of ways to, to outsmart yourselves or the system, they must come up with some some very clever things, did they? Well, again, it, it, you know, I, I, I'd love to be able to give you a load of really great stories about things they've done. Do they use drones? Like, do they use drones they, now? They do, yeah, absolutely. So we, and again, drones have become a phenomenon for the last two or three years. And then we've had to deploy technology, anti-drone technology to try and counteract that. So it really is a game of cat and mouse, you know. So some of the simple things, like the most basic way of getting drugs into a prison is to come down the North Circle Road and throw them over the wall. And when other mechanisms break down they usually go back to the default position of throwing the drugs over the wall so we call them throwovers so it's as simple as that then you have like we had a very very significant drugs haul just before christmas the biggest one we've ever had and it came in through a delivery okay? right and again we, we 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 intercepted it we had intelligence on it we intercepted the drugs and uh, and that issue was resolved so like when you talk about you know the the the, the cleverness of individuals to circumvent the system they will always come up with ways of, of, get, of getting drugs in and mobile phones in. And, you know, and some of them, unfortunately, are sinister. Like we've had situations where you know, young children, babies have been used to bring in, um, to, to bring in contraband into prisons. And that is a really, you know, that's a worrying uh, thing to see. But it happens, you know, I mean, the, 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 such is, is the money to be made in drugs and contraband that you know, people will go to almost any length to get something into prison. Right, because I heard about things like like out of chewing gum wrappers making um, making phone chargers and... So if you think of it, you're, you're trying to conduct a current, so anything that will uh, 
that that a current will travel through. So tin foil, yeah, absolutely, tin foil will be used, and you know anything. So tin foil, like for example, is is always giveaway when we see anyone with tinfoil we're assuming very sinister behavior they're not keeping their food warm it's just to uh, to try and recharge a phone or something you know i have to laugh right john john wrote a question for me here and i was like what was john john smoking never mind your inmates uh, how is the inmates libido managed right <laughs> you um, know it's funny are, are, are the showers really a mysterious place <laughs> Or is that more here mysterious? As in things go disappearing, <laughs> I imagine. Um, I don't know what he meant by that. I know what he meant. Uh, when we talked to John John the other day, he came with a direct question, and we shut him down on it. So he thought about it for the last two days and said, "I'll come back at it at a different angle." Sure, uh, the question is, Baz, how is John John's libido uh, <laughs> needs met? I, well, that's John, the reality of it. I think John John's libido is overly active. Is <laughs> how it is. But tell me this: it, 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 moving away from that. A lot of it, you're dealing with a lot of very frustrated, tense, stressed, um, at times unhappy people. It must be, it must be very difficult to try and keep them emotionally buoyant or keep them upbeat or more to the point connect to them. Like what we were saying at the start. Like, do you have any experiences where you where you've do you befriend a prisoner as a warden, like as a governor? Do you do you do you do you go home? Well, have you gone home and thought that was a good day today? Connected with John John, absolutely, or connected, yeah. You and, know, you know, you do come across like prison. There's some very funny prisoners. There's some very engaging prisoners. There's some prisoners who have really tough stories to tell. So you would be, you'd have to be a rock not to be impacted by some of the things you hear in prison and the conversations you have in prison, and and you do connect with with um with people there's no doubt about it. it the critical piece is not to over connect okay because you know, people come through the system i'm sure if, if if you work in a hospital if you work in any other environment and you, you you get emotionally involved with something that's not a good position to be in you're leaving yourself open and you're leaving yourself vulnerable so so the answer is of course you're affected by people absolutely would, would you want to be a stone not to be and i mean you know very often when you're talking to and this can be a challenge for us when you're talking to people that, particularly people who are serving a life sentence, for example, and you get to know them over a long period of time. And you're always conscious that there is still a victim who's struggling and will have lifelong struggles, particularly in relation to somebody who might have lost a, a loved one, you know, through a violent act. So you have to be very conscious that you have to stay professional and, and, and treat everybody with dignity and respect. And, and you can get friendly with people, but keep it professional. Is that, is that hard for for... I suppose on a personal level, is that hard to to kind of be independent and look at them as individuals and then also be conscious of, you know, why they're there? Is is that a difficult thing for, for guards and for you? You know, it, it, it really depends on the person. I would be kind of a chatty person, right? So I would chat to prisoners quite well. I'd always have a good uh, rapport with prisoners. I suppose that would be the best way I'd put it. But I'd never get so close that you know we'd be chatting about what I did last night or that kind of thing we'd never have that kind of a conversation I'd always keep it to the to the kind of to chit chat kind of I, 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 I think I'd be pretty friendly but yet I'd keep it professional I suppose you see the argument is that society looks at prisoners and inmates in one way yet it's funny I, I've been to prisons and I've met prisoners and the one thing that always stood out to me it was funny, it was like a Billy Connolly quote, he said, you expect them to be these snarling animals with, you know, blood hanging out of their mouths. And sometimes they were just, like they told me their stories and their stories were these manic, stupid moments where they did something reactive and in full, like, they just made a massive, I'm not simplifying it, but they did this huge thing in a single moment. And it changed the, the the path of their life forever. That's a very common thing, if particularly with somebody who has never been in prison before. And for example, a, re a serious violent offence where somebody has died and the person ends up in prison and they're now a life sentence prisoner. And, and, and you know, it, it, it probably would never have happened. It might not happen again. But the reality is it's such a massive crime. It's such a massive impact on, on society that, you know, there is no going back something like that you know it's it's even though and we've i've met loads of life sentence prisoners here and they're nice guys they're quite ordinary they're intelligent they've you know they've a lot going for them but there's still that massive like you just say it's in one moment 
but God, it's a massive moment in your life, you know. So that's the reality of it. There's huge consequences. Because I can imagine if, if if it's something that I've done, and I'm now saying that I've made mistakes in my life. So so I imagine if it's this mad moment that you've done, like if there's a chance of getting out and starting over and creating a new life and all that, you know, that's a carrot. But if you're doing life, like if you're not going to see daylight for a long time, how, do, like wh well, where do they start? Like where, how, how do you help someone like that? Like when a person is sentenced to a life sentence, there's a, there's a pretty long period of adjustment, okay? So normally, and again, I'm generalizing when yeah. I say this, but normally when somebody is sentenced to life, if they pleaded not guilty, they will continue to fight their, their conviction for a period of time. So that could take two years. So they could be in custody on a life sentence for two to three years before the entire case is dealt with. And they then say, okay, I'm now serving a life sentence. So for that two years, the point I'm making is there's hope that they will overturn the conviction or that they will overturn the, 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 the sentence. And so they're still thinking in the vein, well, I could get out of here in two or three years. Then, okay, now I'm facing a life sentence. And there's a very structured approach. And it's very structured from our perspective. We work closely with the probation service. So the, 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 the sensitive piece is whether the person's, uh, how long the person spends in prison and how long they spend under the supervision of the probation service. So, you know, um, you were asking me there about, you know, how difficult it is and how, how, how little hope there must be for people in the community to, to, um, to, to serve a life sentence. So the first thing they know, they know that, they can be paroled at a certain stage in their life sentence and that they will be under the supervision of the probation service. So it is in their interest to engage with the services as early as possible and, and, and to, to, you know, to, first of all, deal with the fact that they are serving a life sentence and then try and deal with the issues that brought them to the stage in their life that, they, that, ended, that made them end up in prison in the first place or yeah. serving a life sentence. So, so like, you know, and it's very complex. It's, it's, it's the decisions and the process of a person going from serving the sentence in the prison to under the probation service is very complex and it's very structured and it takes a lot of time. So you'd often see, for example, a prisoner can apply for parole after seven years and you might see a high profile prisoner in the paper, such and such a body has applied for parole. There's no such thing as applying for parole. It's what's known as a parole board review. Right. So if you, after your seven years, it's currently seven, it's going to change to 12 years in June, but currently after seven years, the parole board review the prisoner. But it's never with the intention of letting them out. It's to see, it's to see, establish what stage are they at in that sentence? Have they engaged with the services? Have they engaged with probation, education? If they have addiction issues, have they started to deal with their addiction issues? So it is really just a, 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 to take stock of the situation. It is never uh, under consideration to allow somebody out or for somebody to apply for parole to get out. So that's one piece of information that's always misrepresented in the in the uh, in in the media. Yeah, it's funny, Eddie, because I was thinking just as you said that, like there must be so many people that end up in prison because of addiction. But how many people go into prison and become addicts is 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 that something you have to monitor a lot as well? Well, well, look, we, we, we'd be very naive to say that there are no drugs in prison. So people have access to drugs in prison and they probably have as much drugs in prison as they have in the community, right? But the reality is a very significant. And I think, I, I think you could be talking about up around 70% of the prison, prisoner population have used drugs at some stage. So to say that they become addicts in prison is probably simplifying it. It is, it is, it is, it is very common knowledge that, you know, people in prison are, you know, are more likely to have used drugs than people in the community. Mm. Um, and the ratio will be certainly higher. So uh, we do try, we work with Merchants Key and other uh, um, drug treatment organizations to try and support um, uh, people who have addiction and to see can we, um, uh, you know, to support them to, to, to move away from, that, from their drug use. But it's very complex, yeah. you know, it's, it's not straightforward. And particularly then if you're in an environment where it's, it's very, it's plentiful where the pressure is on you. Like it's a very male dominated environment in Mount Joy. So there's a lot of peer pressure to, you know, to, to be one of the lads, not to stand out. So anyone that stands up, for example, and looks for help, you know, that's a really big step because mm. everybody else is pushing them into continuing in that norm because there's money in it. Yeah. It's a profitable business to be in. If I take drugs in prison, I have to pay for them drugs some way. If I don't have the money, I have to do something for it. To return to you know to, to pay for the drug you know and that's not the libido no no but no, we leave john john out of this now to be honest yeah. with you no more john john's prison love questions um and i i i suppose do you know i was chatting to someone else about this recently i, I was saying fear is an incredible 
way to control people, right? But but the only thing that trumps that sometimes is hope. Like the people that are the prisoners that are coming into you, are you able to give them hope? Are you able to to, to instill that in them? And if so, how? Absolutely, we are, and we, you know, absolutely, and it, and it isn't just me saying that. That's the reality. One of our major objectives in the prison service is to instill hope in prisoners and to show that there is a way. Um, and and uh, so you'll see it in, in all sorts of you know interactions with prisoners, chaplains, prisoners, uh, family members coming in to visit, phone calls. There's a lot of support there to encourage people to try and choose you know a, a, an option that will support them when they go back into the community. But the big thing is, Baz, like people look at the prison system and we have a role to play. And we I think we do a good job. I think we try you know to to to, to provide people with the supports and the and the uh, uh, and the necessary skills when they leave prison. But there's a massive void in society. I mean, and it's not just about, we'll say, government interventions and government. It's about you and I and our approach to people when they come out of prison. And like so often, I've heard this story so many times of people leaving prison and they've nowhere to go. And they often end up sleeping on a, 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 you know, on a settee or in somebody, or maybe, and it's very often a grandparent or a sibling. So if you think about it, you think of your sister and you coming out of prison and your sister with three or four kids and then you arrive in on top of the situation and she feels obliged to support you. So like, it's a real, it's a massive issue for society. And like, you'll be, you can be sure of one thing, when a person leaves prison, the one support he will have is from other criminals. They will be there waiting to drag him back into the criminal system and to keep him on that merry-go-round, right? We were talking, I was on a meeting earlier where we talked about employment opportunities for prisoners and like employment is so important. But so many of these guys are not ready for employment because they have been using drugs or they don't have a stable home or they don't have, you know, they don't have, uh, uh, there's so many things that are lacking in their lives that a job really is probably way down their list of priorities first. It's about stabilizing them, supporting them, welcoming them back and trying to give them structure to their day. Like the big thing is, as I said earlier on, when you're in prison, you have a structure. When you go out then, the structure's gone. Right, so you get up in the morning and, you know, it's really obvious at the moment. I go out at lunchtime for a walk and I walk down through the city centre and you'll see with all the shops closed so the people that are usually out shopping and all are missing. And I don't want to be, I, want to, I don't want to generalise, but there's so many people in the vulnerable category walking around the city centre yeah. and they stick out now because, yeah. they, because they're, there's no, they're not blending in with crowds anymore. And it's like it's actually quite frightening to see the the amount of people that are on the margins and are on the verges. And these are not necessarily people that are being in prison. These are people that are you know are just could be just a couple of steps away from prison. I think there's other people who maybe aren't even going to go to prison. I think it's a very general yeah. thing where pe- fragile people. There's a there's a very fine line. It's just prison is seen yeah. as such a definitive thing that yes. it's like the worst thing that can happen. Pre-death, yeah, yeah. it's like you end up in yeah. prison. You know, it's it's yeah. that very final thing. So I wonder, does society forgive you? You know, like I I've always had like in my head I have the attitude of you do do your time. You know, you get out. Like, can you start over? Is that a possibility, or is society not going to let is, you do it that? It is, and you know, we I spoke to a number of organisations earlier today who are really you know really there to support people who come out of prison, and they're there sometimes support for four and five years. So there is no doubt about it. There's a lot of emphasis, a lot of resources and a lot of people there to try and support people coming out of prison. But there's also an attitudinal aspect to it where people, uh, you know, it's not my backyard kind of thing. I don't want to, I don't, you often saw it in relation to, for example, um, when we're talking about drug treatment centers in the community where people could come to methadone clinics and, mm-hmm. you know, there'd be a big hullabaloo. Oh yeah, it's a great idea. And we think it absolutely should happen. But don't put it in Ball's Bridge or don't put it in, in Dunnybrook or whatever. Just, you know, keep the problem in the area where the problem is most prevalent. And, and that is a big issue in relation to people coming out. Of, we, we have many conferences with people who really want to support prisoners. And, and, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, uh, goodwill out there. It doesn't necessarily transform into delivery because it's not simple and I, I, I don't blame these people it isn't simple as i said to you if it was as simple as given a job you know we wouldn't have a problem because there's a, you know well prior prior to covid you know we we needed people in particular sections of of, of the labor force and prisons could have supplied them i'll give you one really quick story about a, yeah. a, a guy in the uk who uh, a fellow called james timpson so timpson's run um uh shoe repair 
key cutting services and they're usually attached to a big supermarket. This guy is about a couple of thousand of these shops in the UK, really big business. And his parents used to um, foster children, okay? And it used to be emergency fostering, okay? So he could come down in the morning. There were very wealthy people. His father was a lord, right? They could come down in the morning and there could be 10 kids around the table having breakfast and they come from different communities and they were taken into foster care at, you know, as an emergency thing. So it was really, people were in a crisis point in their life. So it obviously gave him a particular um, um, philosophy on life and he decided he wanted to try and support people. Children. And he decided he work with the English prison system to give people who were in uh, prison a chance when they came out of prison. And they... They did this pilot project. There was a board of directors, so they said, we're not going to tell the board of directors. They'll be opposed to this. We'll take 10 prisoners out of a prison of an open centre of the UK, and we'll put them into 10 of our shops. We'll say nothing about it, and we'll see how it goes. It was a naive thing to do, because the 10 of them robbed the shops. Okay, They were selling drugs in the shops, and the whole thing was a disaster. But he didn't stop. right? And he said they, they, they made it part of their mission statement was that they would support people coming out of prison. He would say that, they are his best workers because they tell him everything about themselves. They don't hide anything. They said they were in prison. And he said, very often you'd interview somebody coming in for a, a job in a shop and they tell you nothing. So you really knew nothing about their background, but someone coming from prison, you knew everything. But the point he made was he was absolutely ridiculous to think that he could just take these guys out of prison and give them a job. Mm -hmm. He had to make sure they got time off to see their addiction counselor, had to make sure that he had a, a resettlement coordinator to help make sure they had accommodation. Like it really is a good example of how complex it is and how important it is. And again, it is about society. It isn't about government. They can provide the funding, but if people don't want these people or keep shunning them, it won't work. Because you know the way in society, there's there's this slight slight change with regarding men, especially where you know a certain level of transparency and um, self evaluation, where you kind of look at yourself and you go, okay, I'm like I'm trying to work me out. Why am I a fucking mess? Um, let me look back at my life and see how I change things to move forward. And just by being honest, if I'm honest to you, you know, it's it's losing that male. Um, a toxic masculinity kind of thing has that seeped into prison because I imagine that's one of the most uber um, toxic masculine places you can go to but has that started to seep in a little bit it actually has yeah believe it or not and you'll find like we have we've programs like our Red Cross program we have we I, I think that the fact that we have uh, plenty of female staff working in the prison who bring a di different perspective. When I joined the prison service, it was, it was extremely male orientated in terms of staff and 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 uh, service providers that came in. So it 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 well, it's not it's not a, an exact replica of society. There is enough female presence in the prison for the female uh, side to uh, to have an impact. If you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So are more inclined to open up and say what they're feeling now. Put them in a group, and we often have group. We don't have too many groups at the moment because of COVID. But when we have group work going on, it's a slow process, and you'll find that you take one. It takes one brave guy to stand up and say something, and then the floodgates open, and they'll all start talking about their, you know, their emotions and, and different things that have happened in their lives. You know, and uh, a, a real, I suppose, uh, important factor is family. Okay, so if you can link conversations back to children, for example, and, and if you can talk about their experience and say, look, would you like your son to, to have the same experiences that you've had? And that's a real, real tearjerker for them, right? And guys realize, and they, and they do genuinely have yet to come across any prisoner who doesn't get emotional when they think about their children and they think about being away from their children. So there are certain like, key icebreakers that we would use to try and get people to open up now, we're a million miles away from uh, um, the snowflakes now who tell you everything, right? But, but they will talk and they are starting to break, uh, you know, to, to open up about uh, difficulties that they've had. Uh, but you're right, it's a very, very, very male-dominated oriented or male-dominated environment. I had, a friend, I had a friend years ago and his little brother went to Wheatfield for a while and they, they, there was a lot of brothers in the family, but they used to bring him in a cake every visiting time and tell him there was a, the nail file in the cake, and they'd be winding them up. And I used to go, you fucking bastards. Like, they were just driving the poor fella mad. I hate to burst your bubble, right? 
but your friend was telling you bullshit there because he couldn't get the cake in. <laughs> so, so that's that's a jail story. We don't allow people to cakes in. So. Well, I'll, I'll have to go chase him down now. He's been telling me that for about 35 years. Um, right. Tell me this. Like the, the prisoners have to keep themselves upbeat, right? They have to have a bit of crack. Have you, have you seen things that you've just thought, what the fuck is going on today? Like, is what kind of mad things have have you seen that you've just kind of secretly kind of had a little laugh to yourself about or thought, Jesus, these lads are just cracked? Well, well, the, first of all, they are very uh, they have a huge skill set, okay. So and they're very talented people. So when it comes to entertainment, okay, a lot of prisoners learn uh, instruments, musical instruments when they go to prison. So they might have had might have, so you'll you'll see a huge amount of talent in respect to performing, okay, and that's where they are extremely funny. Um, I'm going to tell a story, and I'm, I'm sure it'll be cut. But I'll tell <laughs> <it>. <laughs> uh, we, we drugs again is a big issue, you know, and and we have uh, various um, events where prisoners would do, we say, exams, or they might do the leaving cert and the junior cert, and we would present certificates um, to uh, to the prisoners at the end of each term. And normally, a governor, myself, or another governor, would go up to the school and we would present them. And I I went up this particular day to present certs. And uh, the same guy kept getting up because he was out of his head and walking up and shaking my hand. And I'd hand out the cert and everybody's looking and my colleagues were watching me and were saying, what do we do here? There's about 100 prisoners. So anyway, <laughs> but yeah, there are funny situations. There's no doubt about it. With regards to, um, I suppose, things like, say for you, you're out in Cineplex and you're with the missus or whatever, one of the kids and you have a big popcorn. And you bump into uh, an inmate, an ex-inmate, or something. What's that like for you when those two worlds collide? Is this is it awkward? Is it? it I know, I know, it probably varies completely on who you're bumping into. But it, it, that's the part of the job that I can't imagine what that can be like. So look, I'm very lucky in my career. I've I've met plenty of people, plenty of people that have been in prison, and they've always been respectable. And I'd always make a point. And we'd always tell our colleagues to make a point. If you see somebody and you recognize somebody and they see you, make a point of acknowledging them, okay? Mm. Because at least then, if there's a sinister motive to it, you've acknowledged them, they've acknowledged you, so they know that you know who they are, if you, if you know the point I'm making. Yeah, yeah. I've never had a bad experience. I've had loads of experiences where you'd get a, a nod, and how it, and that's usually how it's such and such a body who's still in, and, mm. and ask you a question about that. And they've always been respectful. I do know colleagues who've had difficulties, and they've had unpleasant experiences and uh, thankfully it's not a common experience but it does happen of course it happens i mean it, it, the reality is i've always, always been of the view and and i'm not suggesting now when i say this that people are not respectful but i've always been of the view if you have a respectful approach to people in prison okay keep the barriers that are there they're essential it's a professional uh, relationship between prisoners and staff but i've always been that will usually be replicated either by them while they're in prison are back out in the community. So I haven't had a bad experience. Um, we, we touched on it briefly earlier on where we said like about visiting. How often are they allowed visitors and what are the conditions of visitors? So we have, at the moment, we're in level five. So visits are, are suspended in the prisons. Okay, so at the moment we, we introduced, when COVID arrived, we introduced video phones so prisoners could contact their family by video phone. And like we're talking today, they can talk and see each other. And like that has been really unique because if you think about it, traditionally, the visitor comes up to the prison and comes in and sits in a visiting box and talks to the prisoner. So the prisoner doesn't get a new experience. Whereas now if I'm on a mobile phone and I have a camera and, I, and, and I, I'm talking to my brother and I say, look at it. And he's come on, I'll show you the back garden. And he walks out and he shows all the words. So they're getting a different experience. Wow. Yeah, I never thought of that. Community. Yeah. Yeah. yes, yeah. so, And that's really, and they've, you know, and they've found that to be really good. Um, of course, they miss, without a shadow of a doubt, they miss the contact and they miss the face-to-face mm. contact with family, particularly children. Um, and just in relation to your visits, prisoners get one visit a week and then we try to provide a second visit if we have the capacity to do it. Mm. Some of our visiting areas and some of our prisons are very modern and very family-orientated and, and very relaxed. Others then, depending on the nature of the prisoner and the nature of their previous behaviour and visits, might be a little bit more restrictive, but that's just, it's a graduated approach we take in terms of how they've engaged while they're here. Do children come in to visit? Visit? They do. They do. 
that must be tough. Yeah, yeah. that must be tough. It is. It is. It's very tough. It's, there's no doubt about it. It's very tough. And, and uh, it, as I say, it's probably the most emotional side of it for prisoners when they see their children. And and again, you're coming into an environment where there could be in a visit room there could be six visits going on. So children naturally gravitate towards each other. So you'll find that if it's a partner bringing in the child, she's trying to hold the child. She's trying to keep the child uh, quiet. She's trying to converse with the the boyfriend who was only a short period of time to talk with. So it isn't, it, 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 it's a difficult experience, but it's one that's very important for them because, you know, you'll see lads, you'd see the day of a visit, you'd see a different approach from the prisoner. They're very excited. They're looking forward to having their visit. Uh, they'll often try and get a present or they might have made something in the school that they would sign out to the child. And, you know, so it's an important, a very important event for a prison. What makes you stay doing it, Eddie? Um, well, I suppose, you know, as I said to you when I joined it, I, was, I never saw myself staying for 30 years. And I really enjoy what I do. I, like, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of challenges and, and there's a lot of things we need to improve on. But the current direction we're going in in the prison service, everything is getting better. You know, there's a really strong realisation that we can't do it alone. We, so we've partnered up with so many people in the community. Uh, the conditions for prisoners and staff has improved significantly over the years. I mean, the, the, the prison estate, has almost been fully either rebuilt with new prisons or renovated. So there's only pockets of prisons where conditions need to continue to improve, and that's ongoing. So look, there's a lot of challenges. Staff and prisoners, you know, you can you can to, to Mount Joy today and see every emotion in the one day. You know, you'll see, you know, huge aggression, huge emotion. You know, uh, depression. You know, uh, mental health. You'll see uh, staff, our prisoners who just got news about a, a bereavement. So, like, it really is a challenging environment. But uh, I like it. I have to say, and I, I wouldn't have stayed thirty years if I didn't. Obviously. And and what what do you think the biggest misconceptions are? Because I know, like, I hear some people talk sometimes, and I think that's, uh, they have this picture of someone in a dressing gown with slippers and a joint in their mouth, getting ready to play PlayStation Five. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so what are the biggest misconceptions you think people have about? Uh, either people that are the inmates or or the prison system itself? Well, there's a couple of things I'd say. Uh, when you look at the point you made there about, you know, you'd often read uh, um, descriptions of it being cushy and it being, you know, a holiday camp and all that. It's not a holiday camp. It's, it is, it's a tough, depressing environment. It's an intimidating environment. It is an environment where there's a hierarchy among the prisoners you have you have leaders and then you have followers. So it's not a nice place. It's absolutely not a nice place. And yes, a prisoner has a TV in his cell, but who doesn't have a TV, right? A prisoner has a balanced diet. You know, they're, they're basics. Anyone that would say, like, for example, that a prisoner, you know, gets steak and all that. Well, they don't get steak for a start, but they don't get luxury items. They, they get a, 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 a balanced diet and the conditions are as they should be. Most of the most of the, the the descriptors of prison are on TV, for example, are usually American based, and the American system and even the European system doesn't remotely resemble the the Irish system because so the Irish system is quite a humane system. So the relationship between prisoners and staff, prisoners and teachers, prisoners and healthcare is much stronger. You nearly know everybody in the prison, so everybody nearly knows everybody. You know, so that's the kind of environment it is. You, you touched there just quickly on, on food. What, what is food? Tell me about the diet. Tell me about that. Because there's some big lads. There's some big lads in Mount Joy. I was thinking, well, I don't know what the fuck they're eating. Like three Weedabix at least. <laughs> so, well, you see, just two things you point there. You talk about big lads. Health and fitness is a huge thing in prison. Okay, So an awful lot of people talk about all oh, the prisoners come in and they're huge and they come out. They must be on steroids. Okay, No doubt about it. Some of them have taken steroids if they can get them, right? But Gym is probably one of the most important, particularly for prisoners, we say between 20 and 30. Okay, so they're at that point, stage in their life where it's all about appearance, about exercise, 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 and they have the opportunity in prison to use the gyms. So, if you're in the community and you can go to a gym three days a week, you're delighted with yourself. You get there four days a week, you're actually over the moon, yeah. right? In prison, you can go to the gym possibly twice a day, okay, if, yeah. if, if the roster allows it for you. So, that's very much part of the reason why they get bigger in prison. The other side in relation to food is it's a very balanced diet. Okay, so you'd have uh, you'd have a, uh, you'd have stand, your standard food. I would describe it something similar to hospital food. Mm, that's great. <laughs> Let's be honest, Eddie. <laughs> that's great. Do people come in to talk to the prisoners? Yeah, yeah. So pre-COVID, we would have a lot of. There's a lot of community people come in. There's been a lot of people involved in. We'll say in in programs, education programs. We partner up with a lot of 
the colleges. I have to say, and, and more and more, the longer I'm in the prison service, the more I see the impact of education. Education is the key. And unfortunately, most of these guys, when they were in the community, education wasn't for them. Mm. Okay. And they didn't, and they were, and you know, I don't like to blame any particular uh, system, but the education system def definitely wasn't designed for people who didn't engage in it. So mm. what happened was these people sit in the back of the class, they were a nuisance and they ended up in trouble and they ended up in prison. These are the guys now who have shown tremendous talent in prison. They might get the, the 600 points in the leaving cert, but the skills that they develop working with the education people is huge, you know, and, and, and it, it, it really is, it's an eye-opener. And creatively, I imagine, like artistically, there must be amazing artists. Absolutely. And we, hold, we host a, a number of, uh, of uh, art uh, exhibitions annually in relation to uh, prison art. Phenomenal. There's no doubt. Now, to some of it's rubbish, but there's a lot of it that is Look, really that, good. There's some of it's shite, <laughs> but some of it's great. No, I understand. I have six kids at home. I know the, 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 the different levels of skills that people have. Um, yeah, like, do you know what? I have to say, it's been so nice to chat to you. I, I, didn't, I didn't know what to expect. Well, I have a couple of questions to ask you. Yeah, really shoot. What were you expecting? Shoot. What I don't, expecting? I don't know. I thought maybe you would have to be a very stern, serious. You come across as a very empathetic, understanding, respectful, fair person, you know. And I, I, I'm sorry, I've met other wardens in the States. They were coming from a very different mindset, you know, and sure. it, it was... They were like zookeepers in a way, to be honest with you, Eddie, you know. Well, Baz, I'd like to, I, one point I'd like to make, I think I, I, I am just a representative of the type of person in the prison system. Like the prison system is, it attracts people in who have empathy, who have respect. Okay, we always, you know, in any organization, three and a half thousand staff, you'd have staff to say, would I employ them a second time? Probably not. But there's a huge amount of staff who joined the prison service with, a, with an ambition to try and support people. There's no two ways about it. And I, and I do think, and I put my whinging hat on here when I say this. I do think there's a lack of appreciation for the role the prison service plays. Maybe there's a lack of understanding as well, and there's a lack of awareness about what we do. But like, it is a really important job. I wouldn't, I wouldn't underestimate the fact that there, there are very sinister people in prison who should be in prison, who are in prison for a reason. Absolutely. And, you know, and they've, just, they've really destroyed communities. But there's a significant group that are, you know, with the right supports, can turn their life around. I think anyone who's able to try and give hope to people who don't have any and, and try and help them change their lives. And I know sometimes, like you say, it's a very, um, it's a very broad, broad spectrum of people you're talking about. But even if there was a small percentage that can come out, come out the gates and, and start a new life and, and leave success. that all behind, yeah. I think that's brilliant. You know, you're not... Uh, yeah. You're nothing like your man from Shawshank Redemption. Anyway, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> no, right? No, I don't think. This, well, I'm much better looking. Anyway. Well, obviously, obviously. You're wasted on a podcast. I'll say that for you. But listen, Eddie, thanks so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. It was a lovely job. Really appreciate that, Paz. Thanks very much. Now, Mahi, you moaning about your job. Look what, he, look what Eddie deals with every day. I'm not moaning about my job. Well, you, my you job. moan quite a bit. I know I was moaning at the top, but after listening to that great interview, I don't feel like that anymore. Feeling great for him. Do you know what I mean? No crying in the car for me tonight, for a change. Nice. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> ice cream. I, that's it, ice cream. Listen, there's there's not a lot we, we can really add to that, is there, John John? No, he's brilliant. He's some man, and the work they do is obviously incredible. It's uh, it's not an easy day. Yeah, what a job. Like, uh, like We've all spoken about it before, but the, the only little thing I can really add or think about this is um, sometimes, just sometimes, I think that that with cancel culture and everything else that's around at the moment, people are very fast to judge all the time, you know? And you gotta remember that that judging a person, it doesn't it doesn't define who they are, but it can often define who you are or who who you are becoming. And just be a bit careful with that because even in a day-to-day -day sense, you don't know what it took for someone just to get up out of bed and get on with their day and you don't know who you're meeting being judgy i i think can prevent you from seeing sometimes the good that's hidden beneath um the stories or the people's mistakes and and just be careful it's just it's just, it's just a, an area that you can slip into in certain company very easily, and and I've done it my pa in my past myself a lot. So um, and it's not a nice trait. It's not something I liked about myself. So I made a conscious conscious decision not 
to try and not be like that, you know, to to not be a, a judgmental person and to try and see people for who they are, not not the reputation that they've they've had. And I'm a big believer in change and how people can change. Um, it's worked for me and it's worked for people I know. And that's that. Listen, that's that's kind of the vibe. We really hope you enjoyed the podcast. And um, if you liked it, you could share it with maybe some of your friends. And um, we love comments; they mean the world to us. And uh, five stars. Yeah, yeah. Click the L five stars there. And um, listen, I hope you have a, a really positive week. You can get us on all our, all my social media, Baz, uh, B Ashmaui, or on Twitter or wherever. But listen, look, have a great week. And uh, more than anything else. Listen, good, look in the cup. There you go.